Well, good morning again. On our communion days, we, we, we robe up, we say. We wear robes. And that may be unfamiliar to a lot of us. Uh, some of us grew up, but never. Why do they wear robes? It comes out of the Reformation. And it comes out of a time when the church was, well, into kind of a showmanship, glistening and glowing, uh, gold laced uh, clothing and so forth. And the idea was for the reformers to get the attention off of the person speaking. That's why the black, the plain, simple black scholar's robe. Because at the heart of the Reformation was the teaching of the Word of God to God's people in a language that they could understand. And I hope this morning you do that. But if you didn't know that, that's why we robe up once a month in our sacraments, the thought of just don't look at me. And we come this morning to the table, and that is our focus. Our passage this morning is about failure. Failure. What do we do with failure? I love the famous stories of so many who have failed that we love and cherish, like Walt Disney. Did you know he was fired from the Kansas City Star? as a reporter, because according to the editor, he, he wasn't creative enough. Or the only billionaire writer ever, J.K. Rowling of Harry Potter fame, divorced young, single mother with a child, basically on welfare. Um, Abraham Lincoln failed business Never won an election until president uh, or a Senate in, in Illinois. We see these failures. Michael Jordan famously cut from his basketball team. Michael Jordan. Each of those, though, are people we've only known as successes. We didn't know them when they were failures. That's a different dynamic because what we deal with this morning is not someone who failed and then came successful in business or sports but was a success who became a failure. How do we deal with that? Well, I know what's in my heart. I often focus on their failure, scold them, throw them under the bus. We love stories of failures who become successful, but we, we revile stories of those who are successful that become failures. How does Jesus deal with those? And in more particular here, think about this. The failure we're dealing with is of a sort that we don't have much charity for. What do we do with moral failure? Let me add an adjective. What do we do with public moral failure? Let me intensify that even more. What do we do with public moral failure of the foremost leader of Jesus' church? What do we do with that? How would we react? How would Jesus react? Can God love a failure? Let's read this Scripture together and drink in the Gospel this morning. Now when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. 
Jesus said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let's pray. Lord, we ask in these few moments that you would use this sweet occasion to remind us that there is hope for even we who are failures. We ask this now kindly in Jesus' name, amen. Just kind of rise to the surface. There's so much in here, but let's just focus around two things. Hey, what is at the heart of our failure? That's question one. What is at the heart of our failure? Question two, though, is maybe more poignant. What is in the heart of Jesus toward failures? What's in our heart as failures and what's in the heart of Jesus toward those failures? Let's look at the heart of failure first. What's in the heart of we who fail? It's interesting that here they're around a fire. Jesus has built a fire and he's feeding them breakfast. It was the last uh, occasion of a, uh, the last time we saw a fire was the, the morning of Jesus' betrayal. Do you remember? There was a fire and Peter had gathered around it. And the people watching the events of what would become the crucifixion noticed Peter standing there. And they aligned him with Jesus. Aren't you a Galilean? Aren't you with this Jesus, this criminal being crucified. And Peter, Peter said what? Three times. I don't know Him. I don't know Him. I don't know Him. Here it is no accident that Jesus gathers Him once again around a fire in the morning. And this time asks Him three questions three times just like the denials to reaffirm his love for Jesus three times, three times. What made this so gripping was that Peter had been so arrogant, so competitive. He thought of himself as a self-styled leader of this amazing movement. And when Jesus at one point said, you know, I'm going to be betrayed and turned over and crucified and I don't expect you to get all that. Peter stood up in the midst of that and he said, Lord, even if everyone else leaves you, I never will. How bold. And now here's Jesus sitting with Peter and the other disciples watching and listening. Here was a man who had been certain that he would be the greatest success Jesus had ever known. But he was the worst failure at that project. Well, we want to know why, I think. What's at the heart of this failure? We could say, well, Peter lied. He betrayed. 
Jesus, though, wants us to know that there's something deeper than just the act that is committed. There's the reason why it was committed. We could say it like this. Jesus is less interested in what we do, with our, what we sin with. He's more interested in why. What's down there? Because only there can you have healing. Yes, Peter had broken vows. He had said he was going to do one thing and he did something else. He lied. But why? Jesus subtly hints at the reason in those questions. He says it three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? What Peter wouldn't have understood and what Jesus is trying to teach him is that at the heart of our sinful failure is a deeper problem of misplaced love. Jesus is telling Peter that the reason you failed was because you loved something more than me. Now, we would have never thought that in the moment. Lying, betraying, protecting oneself, all of that seems to be so impulsive and natural, but Jesus is hinting at that reality. When we sin, there's a reason. There's something else we love more in that moment than the Lord of glory. We all forsake and betray Him. For Peter, it would have been, hey, lying, that's a problem, but that's not going to change you. I want to get down to why you lie. Was it your reputation? Is that more important than me? Self-preservation, comfort, popularity. Was that more important than me? There was something driving that. And so it is with us, too. When we gossip, there's a reason behind that. When we lie... It's not just the act. I can't believe you lied. No, no. Why did you lie? What were you after in that moment? Every, every lust, every angry outburst, every refusal to forgive, every greedy grasp. There's a reason. We love something more in that moment than Jesus Himself. Something's more beautiful. Something's more captivating. Something's more offering of life. And it's usually things like beauty and power and control and our reputation. We want to preserve those things. But you notice Jesus doesn't beat Peter up with the action. He never mentions what He did. He just emphasizes what the heart of the reason behind it. Do you, do you love me more? Yes, Lord. You know that I do. For we, when we get caught in our failures, we usually focus on the behavior. Or maybe it's easier to understand when others fail around us. We see only the behavior. I get caught cheating on my taxes. I'm humiliated, and what I say to myself is, I, I'm a Christian, I shouldn't do that. Why would I do that? That's self-pity. That's not repentance. The better question is not that I cheat on my taxes. Why, in the first place, did I make that decision to cheat on my taxes? Well, Jesus would tell us, it's because money was your Christ in that moment. 
comfort and the prospects of, well, having a little more. That was your Christ in the moment. Appearances, that was your Christ in the moment. Here's the good news. Fake gods, they will never unmask us for the frauds we are. But the true God will definitely unmask us, and that's good news. We can think of coming to Jesus in two ways, or being part of His church, or this religion we love in two ways. It's either plastic surgery or heart surgery. And what we often want with Jesus is plastic surgery. Just make my outward appearance a little cleaner. But Jesus insists that plastic surgery is no good. Let's go do heart surgery. And so he cuts and he opens up and there the healing begins. That's what he's doing with Peter. It's the most gracious thing anyone could ever do is to sit down and expose his heart as uncomfortable as it might be. And you notice in verse 17 it says, Peter, it gives a little detail, Peter was grieved. Grieved. Peter is sad. Here he is sitting before the disciples knowing that he had made this big blunder publicly with assurance that even if everybody goes away, he never would and yet in the moment deny Jesus three times. And there's Jesus sitting in front of him and talking to him. And there's sorrow that's gripping him, the, the weight of the guilt he must feel perhaps. Here he's a person that, you know, he's playing this tape over and over in his head. Man, I wish I could have that back. I, re I didn't realize he was going to resurrect. I wish I could have that back. Am I beyond repair? Am I hopeless now? Would Jesus no longer have use for me, even though He might forgive me? You know that tape. You know that tape. He's grieved. What's beautiful here is the repetition of all of these. You remember, Peter three times said, I don't know Jesus. And then when Jesus asks him, do you love me? Each time Peter affirmed something that Jesus knew about him, you know me. In that moment, I declared, I don't know him. And here he is, at his most vulnerable, his most raw, his most transparent, saying, but you know me. You know me better than I know me. And what's amazing is that Jesus is the only figure in our life who knows us better than anyone else and yet has breakfast with him. If someone really truly knew what was in your heart, they would leave you. And if you really knew what swirled in my heart, you would rightly get up and leave. <laughs> That's how we react to seeing humans as they really truly are. What about Jesus? Here is the hope Peter has. That yes, the heart of his failure is idolatrous rebellion. He had other gods before me. But we begin to see the transition to point two. Jesus has a heart for failures. 
The good question now is what allows Peter to sit down and eat with Jesus? Why not run? Peter does run in this chapter, but it's toward Jesus. I find that fascinating. In the earlier parts of the Gospels where Jesus first meets these guys, they were all saying, depart from me. Because in that moment, they had seen this glorious Lord and all His brilliant holiness, and they knew themselves in comparison to that, and they were shattered. And it was the instinct of all of us, when you blow it, you run and hide and deflect and defend or make excuses. That's what we do. And notice here how the Lord Jesus is now attractive. It says in this chapter, Peter literally jumps out of the boat when they were fishing and runs toward Jesus. It's because he had begun to learn something about the heart of Jesus toward failures. Quick context, chapter 21. Chapter 21 is the end of the Gospel of John. That means they're gearing up for the explosion of the church. And it's interesting that in this chapter, there are two images. One, the disciples go fishing, and there's another miraculous catch. And then there is talk of shepherding, feed my sheep. Hear that again. Fishing, shepherding. Those describe the task of Jesus' church henceforth. Fishing, gathering the lost, evangelizing those who don't know Jesus, shepherding, caring for the found, challenging and comforting them. Jesus is giving us a sense of this is what you're about. Fishers of men and shepherds of the flock. There's the church. And what we're wrestling with here is this leader, the greatest in the church, who insisted he would perform better than everyone else did the worst. What do we do with him? Can we ever listen to him again? I mean, I don't know about you. You can conceive of like degrees of sin. I would suspect that the highest of all forms is to flat out deny Jesus. And Jesus restores him. That's what this passage is about. He restores him. He actually puts Peter back in the lead. He makes him publicly confess this painful sin in front of the other disciples because he had publicly denied Jesus and he's publicly being restored. And nobody can say anything if Jesus says you're restored. Nobody can talk about Peter and what he did because the Lord said, restored. Jesus has taken Peter to seminary. Your church tradition focuses heavy on the education of its ministers. For good reason, read your history. Yikes. But here Jesus takes Peter to seminary and the lesson for him to learn in himself and then the lesson that will explode when you flip the page to Acts is repentance and faith. That is the message of the Christian gospel. You stand in front of Jesus, you will repent. You will acknowledge your failureship, rebellious, willing sinfulness. 
and yet not remain hopeless because in faith you have looked to the one who solves it and cleanses it, turning from it by turning to Jesus. That's what's going on in here. And you notice the very last verse, Jesus has already predicted lifelong service because it talks about how Peter would die stretched out arms, being led away, just like his Lord crucified publicly. You and I typically define ourselves and we define others usually by their worst moment. It gets locked in our head. That's the person who blank. Don't you remember they were blank? And that's it. That's the only note we have of a person. All of their complexity and all of the moments of their life reduced to their worst moment. We, we curse them in that sense by their worst decision they ever made. By contrast, you can see that in failure and because of the gospel, you can sit immediately with Jesus. Unlike our dealing with other people when they disappoint or fail us, there's no payment plan. There's no time period that they must work off. There's no waiting with Jesus. It's immediate. There's no delay. And He, he sits with them without reservation. Please get the image in this chapter. We didn't read it, but it's earlier. Jesus cooks them breakfast. <laughs> I find that fascinating. They catch fish. They bring it to Him. He's built a fire. He cooks for them because He wants to eat with them. No wonder Peter was able to sit with Him rather than run rather than hide, rather than say, I can't go back into His presence. Maybe later, but not now. It's just too real, too raw. Nonsense, Jesus says. He paid it all, right? There's a twist side to this too for us. If you build your life on the idea that you are a pretty good person in comparison to others, if that's kind of what you're banking on, that they'll say at your funeral, if you're a good per I'm a good person when I'm compared to others, if you bank your life on that, every time you fail, sin, slip up, and you will, you won't be able to keep yourselves together. It will unravel you and undo you because you're relying on plastic surgery. Any reminder of sin will absolutely crush you. But, if you're building your life on the gospel of Christ, you hear that the determining factor of your placement in God's arms doesn't rise and fall with your success and failure, but is completely aligned and owned by Jesus' success, His success, His accomplishment, then even when you meet the raw reality of your humanness, you sit and eat with Jesus immediately. 
you and I are able to see in this passage that we can gladly own what the Gospel tells us. I am broken. I am sinful, as we read earlier. Lord, I am rebellious. I am, if given the opportunity, going to worship myself and hold myself higher than you and others. That is who I am. I will fail you, Jesus. I will fail others. I will fail me. But in Christ, failure is the greatest opportunity. Failure becomes an opportunity, not a liability. You will fail. What do you do with it? Run and hide. Come back to church in a couple years. Failure is an opportunity for what? Intimacy with Jesus. That's what the breakfast is about. And that's what this table is about. Oh Lord, that should be me on that sacrificial altar. Before you, not others, but before you, I I rightly deserve that condemnation. You break my body. I deserve that. You spill my blood. Someone has to pay for the way I've treated others. And I've failed to treat you. But Jesus here is not only commissioning Peter to go be a preacher, he's already used him to preach. Peter would have said, this is my worst moment. And Jesus says, no, for the world to read, this is the best moment. What you consider to be the thing that unraveled you, I'm showing to the world the thing that makes this gospel precious. I'm restoring a failure. Jesus restores failures. If you remember that the heart of God is bent this way, then you will never fear throwing it out there to Him. There will never be a need to defend or excuse the gravity of your failureship. You can own the fact that, man, I'm not what I want to be. But Christ is what I need. Wallowing in self-pity, which is so common in our little culture, is arrogant. It is the height of pride. It is anti-Christ. It refuses the cross of the Lord. But here, you're able because you know He will have breakfast with you to confess. And to get to the heart so that you'll change and then cling again to new life. The road to a holy, joyful life is through that valley. But man, it's a sweet, sweet ride. Jesus has these safe arms that we cling to. Here's the point. If you are not a failure, then I have only sad news for you. But if you are a failure, not in comparison with your neighbors, but sitting at the feet of this marvelous Savior, if you are a failure then, I've got good news for you. Behold the Lamb that was slain. 
who is calling each of us to come sit, eat. Let's pray. Lord, in these moments, we thank you for this memory. And we thank you that you impressed upon the Apostle John to record its every detail, its every word. We treasure it, Lord. And we ask that you would impress upon us, the, Lord, the wideness and the depth of your arms and your reach and your forgiving mercy. This is a blessing only you can share with us. We ask for it in Christ. Amen.